Are you jealous for your wife or husband? Should you be? Is jealousy for a loved one right or wrong? Well, stay with us as we hear the answer to these questions and more. You're listening to the Question and Answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. This program is a ministry of the Through the Bible Radio Network, and we hope that you'll be able to pull up a chair with an open Bible and an open heart as we listen to the wit and wisdom that Dr. McGee brings in answering the many questions of his listeners. Now, we begin our program today with a question from a listener in Carlsbad, California, who writes, When witnessing to our neighbors, where does our responsibility end? and the Holy Spirit's begin in bringing them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Should we create the opportunity to share with them, or should we just wait for a natural opportunity to arise? How far does our responsibility go in reaching our immediate neighbors? Should we rely on an organized church program to reach the rest of the people? Well, I do not know just how you've been indoctrinated, but apparently with the idea that you are responsible for your neighbor's salvation. And I want to say very candidly that I have never quite agreed with that theory today that you're to witness to every person that you meet under all circumstances. You're to go around in the neighborhood and witness to everyone. Today, there is a great deal put on fleshly effort and fleshly works. I believe today the greatest evangelism that there is is prayer evangelism. I do not think that you ought to speak to anyone until you've spoken to God about them and to pray and ask God to open the door for you. I think we can be rather foolish in our witnessing if we just go out, you know, like a bull in a china closet and begin to witness. It should be done prayerfully. I heard the story about the young fellow in Chicago. He was very zealous, and he got himself a handful of tracks, and back in the old days, he got on the streetcar, and he handed the conductor a track, and the conductor said to him, he says, have you read this track? And the young fellow said, no, I haven't. The doctor handed it back to him, said, you take it and read it, and if it's good, let me know. I'll read it. You see, this young fellow had a zeal, but not very much knowledge. He shouldn't be handing out tracts that he hasn't read, that he doesn't know what they have to say. We need to be very careful about even handing out tracts and giving out books We ought to know what we're doing when we do that sort of thing. And then I think we ought to use judgment. There's a little story that I tell about an experience I had. When I graduated from college, I was going to go to seminary. But I needed to go down to my college to pick up some records and that sort of thing. And so I didn't have much money in those days. And I had a few days off from the job I had that summer. I finally got one. It was during the Depression. And so I went out to hitchhike. And quite a few cars passed me by, but a fellow came by in a 
Ford sedan, a Model A, and he looked me over and went down about 50 yards and stopped and motioned to me. And I went down and asked him where he's going. He said, to Memphis. And you want to know where I was going? I said, I'm going to Memphis. And he said, well, get in. And so I got in and we became acquainted. We started talking to each other naturally. He wanted to know what I did. I wanted to know what he did. I found out he was a drug salesman for one of the pharmaceutical companies. And he called on drugstores and he told me he was going by Somerville because he had to make a call there and he'd be stopping at another place. And I forget now what place that was. And so we drove down and at about lunchtime, it was a several hours drive and he wanted to know if I want lunch, and I accepted his invitation, and he bought me a sandwich and a drink, and so we had that together, and by that time, he knew what I was going to do. I was finished college. He was going to take me by the campus because I was going to stay in the dormitory there. It was summertime, and he was going to take me by there. He was very much interested, but I didn't dare approach him. He made it clear to me. He says, I'm not a church member. I'm not what you call a religious man. But if I'd started presenting Christ to him, that man could have stopped the car, opened the door, and said, get out, son, and left me stranded out there on the highway. And frankly, I didn't think I wanted to be stranded on the highway, and I didn't think the Lord wanted me to be, so I kept my mouth shut. But I prayed. I said, Lord, if you want me to talk to this man, you're going to have to open the door. Well, this man stopped at Somerville, and he took quite a while in there, and he must have sold quite a bill of goods and came out, and he said to me, he says, would you like to drive? And I said, yes. And so he let me drive the car, and we started in, and he just sat there. In fact, he dozed a little. He'd had a successful sales and had somebody drive his car, so he's very happy. And then he waked up, became alert. We drove along for quite a distance, never said a word to each other, and finally said to me, he says, you know, I went to church the other night, and he says that preacher said something that I'd never heard before. He said that Jesus was coming back to this earth again. He said, looked at me, he says, you're going to study theology? Do you believe that? I said, yes, sir, I believe that. He says, you do? And he said, on what basis? Then I moved him back to the first coming of Christ. And I told him, I said, you have to go back to the first coming of Christ to understand why he's coming the second time. And he says, you do? And I said, yes. And so I really gave him the gospel. Man, he opened the door. And when he opened the door, I walked in. And I want to tell you, I preached that man a sermon. And by that time, he, he sure was ready to listen to it. And when we drove up to the dormitory, I never shall forget, uh, on the campus, he stopped the car, and he still was talking about it, and he expressed an interest. And I said to him, I said, wouldn't you like to accept Jesus as your personal Savior? He says, I sure would. And I said, well, let's bow our head. And I pray, and then you pray, and tell him you accept him. So I bowed my head and prayed for the man, and Lord Jesus be made real to him by the Spirit. And that fellow who was so glib, he was a salesman, and he sure stumbled on that prayer. But he said, Lord, I accept Jesus as my Savior from sin. 
And so he and I shook hands, and he told me goodbye. And three years later, when I became pastor of a church in Nashville, I looked down in the congregation, and I sat that man with his wife. May I say to you, I've always felt that if I had blurted out at the beginning, because I can do that at times, and I've blundered many times in witnessing, that just happens to be a successful time. And if I'd blurted out like was my custom, I could tell you this, that I'm sure that man, knowing him, and after I'd met him and knew what kind of fellow he was, I'm sure he'd open the door and said, son, I don't care to argue religion with you today. So I think that getting back now to your question, may I say, pray about your neighbors and ask the Lord that you're willing to speak to them, but you want him to open the door. And I believe this with all my heart. You make that a matter of prayer and you're prepared that the Lord will open the door for the particular neighbor when the time comes. And I think we ought to witness like that. Now, that's my understanding of witnessing, and I know that that is not the popular view right now. But it just happens to be the thing I believe in, and I have found that it works. And that, I think, is the important thing. Our next question comes to us from Los Angeles. The listener writes, In your booklet, The Dark Side of Love, you say that if a man is not jealous for his wife, he must not love her. Either that or he's just sure that no one else would be interested in her. But in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, it says, Love is never jealous or envious. And Proverbs 6, verse 34 says, For jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. Are you saying that jealousy is a virtue for a Christian? No, I'm merely saying that jealousy is a thermometer that tells how much you love your wife. That is all that I'm saying there. But now I want to come down to the real problem that is here, but there was no reference to it all. There is an idea that jealousy is a very terrible, awful thing today, And as a result, they're not only the living New Testament, but also the Revised Standard Version, which is the version of the liberal, the National Council of Churches. And it says love is patient, kind, and love is not jealous or boastful. Well, may I say to you that That has changed again the statement we have in 1 Corinthians 13 in the King James. And I'd like to go back and read that one again because it says here, Love suffereth long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. And in my book, I don't think that could be improved on, and I do not think that the living New Testament has made any improvement here. It's actually confused it. But also the Revised Standard Version, the National Council of Churches, I expected them not to be too careful there. And then of all things, the New American Standard Bible also has this same thing, Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. 
Now, I want to say that here is an illustration of the thing that we have been saying for a long time, that there has been a real problem in these new translations of not making fine distinctions. Now, jealousy in the Word of God is not looked upon as something that is wrong. Did you know what the Word of God says concerning God? In Exodus 25, I read this, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them. Now, he's talking about making images, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. God says he's jealous. And I don't think that there's anything wrong with God. Therefore, there should have been a distinction made in the translation that we have here. And if you notice, the King James didn't slip into the era that these new translations have. And they're all supposed to be an improvement, you see, to bring it up in the English, we can understand. Now, I don't know about you, but I understand very clearly what the King James said, that love doesn't end it. In fact, I love the way that it's stated, you know. Let me say it again. Love suffereth long and is kind. Love envieth not. Love vaunteth not itself is not puffed up. Now, I understand that. But when you say that love is not jealous, then I don't understand that at all. And let me say this to you, that the word in the Greek does mean several things. It can mean jealous. But I don't think that Paul used it that way here because Paul knew that God was a jealous God. Now, listen. That's not all. Over in the 34th chapter of Exodus at verse 14, and I want you to hear this. For thou shalt worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous. That's the name of God. That's one of his names, Jealous. God is jealous. God said to his people, I don't want you to serve these other gods. And the reason is, I'm jealous. I love you. I have made a way for you to come to me. I've provided you a mercy seat that's pointing to my son that's going to die for you because God so loved the world. He's going to do that for you. Now, he's jealous of you. He wants you to serve him. And a great many people think maybe that's wrong. In this day when we have a new set of ethics, we have today the new morality and easy sex relationships and that type of thing. And so we can say love is not jealous, but love is jealous, friend. May I say to you, I know there are a great many people today that believe in free love, swapping wives and all that sort of thing, but I don't believe in that. I'm very jealous of my wife, and that's because I love her. Now, if I don't love her, and I say to any woman, and when your husband gets to the place he's not jealous of you, you better watch out. You're losing him. And that is the point that I was making. And when you say, 
Am I saying jealousy is a virtue? I'm saying that jealousy is the name of God because the Bible says it, and I accept that. Therefore, you have to be very careful how you use the word jealous today. I'll admit it can be used in a wrong way if it means a man gets his gun and goes out and shoots another man because he's a little jealous. That certainly is not the kind of jealousy that we have in the Word of God. And here is where fine distinctions need to be made. And these Greek scholars today that are making these new translations, for some strange reason, are trying to get words that are idiomatic words in our language today. And jealousy is just one thing that we just don't have in this new day. Well, I say that it's in the Word of God and that it's a good word. The original means that, and it doesn't mean it in the translation we have in 1 Corinthians 13, only by a stretch of the imagination. Many of these Greek words have different meanings. Now, you will find that God is called a jealous God in many places in the Scripture. In Nahum, the first chapter, verse 2. And I'm not going to turn to all of these Scriptures, but you look them up and you'll find out that God is a jealous God. And I'm not only saying that jealous is a virtue, it's the name of God. And God proved His love to us because He wants you and He wants you alone. And I can't think of anything more wonderful than that for a woman and a man to fall in love down here and for him to say, I want you for myself. You belong to me. And I want her to be able to say, he's mine. You keep hands off of him. Now, my friends, I know I sound like a square, don't I? I sound like I've walked out of the Middle Ages. That's all right. I still think these values that have come down through the years are the eternal values and their pure goal. And I think that we've got a lot of phony stuff going around today. And I don't like the new translations, friends. I'm sorry that I have to say that, but I really don't like them because they've caused this person to ride in, and this person is obviously very much confused because of the new translation. And, of course, the others have fallen into that same kind of a trap. Now, this is only one instance of many instances where we've received letters. If someone has read one of these new translations, and they're all confused by what they've read. And the purpose, I'm told by the new translation is to put it into modern English so you can understand it. Well, you better be careful the kind of modern English that you use. And that's my reason for saying, hang in there with the King James, and it will give you a lofty, reverent language as far as we are concerned. And I recognize that we can deal with the words, and I think those of us who claim to be Bible expositors ought to be very careful when we are attempting to tell what a passage means. And I have been criticized for that. They say, well, you say you stick by the King James, then you'll spend sometimes five to ten minutes explaining one verse what it means. And that's right. That's what I do. I attempt to go into it in detail and try to find out what it means. 
what the original is saying. And I find out that King James is very good. I don't think it's perfect by any means. And that's the reason I think we need explanations as we go along, but we sure better be careful. Now, that's the reason I've saved this question till now for the very simple reason that you have there are two examples that God is a jealous God, and he makes no apology for it. And the second thing is that the new translations can throw you a curve, and you'll wonder what in the world it's all about. And that is one of the problems that we have to deal with today. Our final question comes to us from a listener in Texas who asks, Did Paul teach the virgin birth according to Galatians 4, verse 4? And the answer is, yes, he did. You give the, I consider the key verse where he teaches the virgin birth, and that is Galatians 4, 4. And it reads, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law, or born of a woman and born under the law. Now, there are several implications of the virgin birth made by Paul, and I would not want to labor this, but just give one. That would be Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. And that is the shining forth, the epiphany, and all that is implied in that. You see, the difference between Paul and the gospel writers is they were writing down history and the teachings that Jesus gave during that three years of ministry and then the historical record of his death and his resurrection. Now, Paul deals with the theology of that, not the history. And when he gives, for instance, the gospel, he says Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He was buried that he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. Now, he's not giving the history there, which is obvious. He's stating the historical fact that Jesus died. He doesn't tell us the day he died. He doesn't tell us where he died. He doesn't tell us actually here how he died. It just says it's according to the Scripture. Now, from the historical record, then we would get the facts. So the virgin birth would be in the teachings of Paul, and there are several references. I wasn't going to do it, but... I think maybe I ought to, and I'll turn over to the ninth chapter of Romans where it says, Who are Israelites? And that's verse 4, To whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom is concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all God, blessed forever. He's God, and he came according to the flesh. You see, there is the teaching 
of the virgin birth without giving the historical record of it at all. But it is the virgin birth. So that there are other references, and as I said, I'm not going to labor the point other than just attempt to answer that question for you. If you'd like to know more about the biblical teaching of the virgin birth, you might be interested in Dr. McGee's sermon on CD titled, The First Person to Doubt the Virgin Birth. Also mentioned on today's program was Dr. McGee's message, The Dark Side of Love. This booklet's no longer in print, but you can download a PDF copy from our website at ttb.org, or you can order the sermon on single CD. For more information on these items, contact one of our service operators. They can be reached by calling 1-800-65-BIBLE, Monday through Thursday from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that number is 1-800-652-4253. We'd like to remind you to join us this week on the Through the Bible radio program that can be heard every Monday through Friday on this station. We'll be continuing Dr. McGee's five-year journey through the whole Word of God, book by book and chapter by chapter. Now, if you want to know how this ministry is being blessed and how the Word of God is reaching into the hearts of those who are listening around the world, then contact us today to be added to our mailing list for our monthly newsletter. All you need to do is call us at 1-865-BIBLE and leave your voicemail request. You can also use our internet order form at ttb.org or write to questions and answers in the U.S. Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. Now as we leave you, we pray that God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. Jesus made it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. This program has been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of the worldwide ministry of Through the Bible Radio Network. Thank you.